This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, May 7th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. So Genesis chapter 50, I'm going to read the whole thing, beginning in verse 1, and that will have concluded our reading of every verse in the book of Genesis. Praise God. Genesis 50, verse 1 says this, Then Joseph fell on his father's face, and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And so the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a great great mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us, pay us back for all the evil that he did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in 
Egypt. This is God's Word. <sighs> now, the month of May, and I didn't really realize this so I started preparing for this sermon, but the month of May is a pretty significant month for me personally. Um, this year, it will mark the beginning of what I would consider my 40th year as a Christian, uh, my 23rd year as a husband, my 16th year as a father, and my 12th year as a pastor. It's a lot of years. And that doesn't even mention Star Wars in the month of May, which we could have a whole other conversation about, but May is significant in my life. We'll just put it that way. And each of those roles I mentioned, right, father, husband, pastor, are all very different. Um, but one thing that's the same with every role every year is that things change. I remember the first year I became a father. It was a very different time in my life. And this year I have a 16-year-old, which is a very different parenting experience than a newborn, right? Still a parent, but a different kind of parent. I'm sure when uh, my bride and I were married for the first couple years, it was very different in terms of everything was wonderful and bliss and amazing, and now it's still that, exactly, right? No, I mean, 23 years later, it's, it's just different. It's not good or bad, but definitely things have changed in who we are and, and how we live, and some changes are expected. That's not like, you know, my son turning 16 is like, what? You're 16? Like, you know, you're expecting that. And over the years, many things have been very unexpected. I never expected to be a pastor. That's one of those unexpected things. And even though some of the changes are relieving, right? I, I look forward to the day when my five children whom I love exit my home. <laughs> and things return to the romantic days of yawn, Right? Doubtful, but like some of the changes are relieving, like I'm, I'm relieved to be, and, and some are welcome, and, and, and some are not. But I found that all the changes, regardless, are painful. Every single one, it's a different kind of pain, but it's painful. I remember the first time I, I put my oldest son, who was you know five years old, on the bus to go to kindergarten. Like that was painful. Like, what's going on, right? Every change is. is is painful in some way. And, and most changes aren't intrinsically good or bad. They just are. But over the years I've found, personally, and maybe you feel the same, that change in our lives, expected or unexpected, planned or unplanned, but change in our lives is the tool that God uses to reveal often the change that needs to happen in my heart. It's a great tool for God to use. Change, in other words, doesn't really create new problems, though practically it feels like that. Like I gotta deal with this now, I gotta deal with, you know, car insurance or diapers or whatever happens to be. I'm, life is different now. But I think in many times change doesn't create new problems as much as it reveals problems that have always been there. I'm talking about the important problems, the heart problems. And as painful as, as some of these big changes might be for us, I think that if we could pause for a moment 
which is hard for us to do when the world feels chaotic and everything seems to be changing in our lives, or at least the one thing that we didn't think would change. It's a great opportunity to, re- to kind of evaluate. And I say evaluate this, your reactions to that change. Because your reactions to that change, I believe, reveal a lot about your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. And so it's a welcome thing to go, okay, where am I at? Where are we at? So Genesis 50 is an interesting chapter. It's the final chapter, obviously, in the book of Genesis. It's the final chapter in the story of Joseph. And as I prepare for um, what is an extended sabbatical, which I'm looking forward to, and our church prepares for changes of leaders or people doing different things in mission, even as our families prepare for summer, right? Things change in the summer. Rhythms change. As we look forward to these times, we can expect things to change, and some of them will surprise us. We can plan for some of the changes, right? Others we will not be able to plan for. And I can know though for certain, even though I don't know exactly all the changes that will occur in our lives over the next three months or six months or year, I can be certain that they're going to be hard. That's what I know. I don't mean hard in like a horrible way. Although some might be horrible. I mean just difficult. And I think it's because of this fact. I think change is typically pretty hard for us, even some of the expected ones, because it usually signals the death of some expectations we had. Of the way we thought life was going to go. And it doesn't have to be like grand, big, huge things. It can be very small things, but Man, I, I, I thought things were going to go this way. And the reason that that's so painful is because we actually believe, though we won't admit it, but we believe that what we want, our desires, they always align with God's purposes. I know this is what God wants for me. Right? And that's why when, when God's purposes unfold in your life and it's different than what you expected... It hurts. Maybe you create some other feelings of fear or anger or whatever. But when that happens, when God's plan for your life and plan for your relationships and plan for whatever thing that you thought was going to come to pass, when that unfolds differently, I need you to know this. This is one thing the story of Joseph have told us. That the problem is not with God's good purposes. The problem is with what you thought were good expectations. And it doesn't mean they were wholly bad. It means they were just not aligned with what God saw fit. And the question is, how are you going to react now? If nothing else, I think we've learned through the life of Joseph, the story of Joseph, this last portion of Genesis, that God's good purposes often come about through what we will experience as really bad things. We would never choose it, But we do see in the story of Joseph that that is often the way God works. And what makes this story amazing is not that we know the end, right? So we know the end, and it's hard to to really kind of, I think, get past that. Like, Joseph is prosperous. Joseph has power. He has wealth. He has all these things. And we're like, yeah, it ends well. That's not the biggest takeaway. I think the biggest takeaway is to realize that 
none of the good or the prosperity would have happened if not for the pain and the bad that did. They were deeply connected to one another. And so Genesis 50 provides us a framework to, I think, understand like, how do you deal with, with change that hurts? And how do you grow in that? How do, you, how do you even maybe thank God and praise Him for that? Which is really hard. Let's look at Genesis 50 here. Genesis 49 ended with the death of Jacob. So Jacob, the father, also called Israel, he's died, right? He just died at the end of 49. In 50, we see Joseph weeping. I think it's interesting that you never see his brothers weep throughout the whole book. All you see is Joseph weeping perpetually about things that you should be weeping about, uh, but it gives us insight into his heart in particular. But this is a great loss to the family of God. No way you cut it. It's a great loss, and it's a loss that is felt not just in Jacob's family, but across the whole nation of Egypt. And, and I just kind of try to give you the, the, the depth of this hurt, the depth of this change that has occurred. You see, the Egyptians embalm the body. They end up weeping for 70 days, and that's a month longer than it took for the body to be prepared for burial. So they are weeping greatly. When eventually they go back to Canaan, you see that there will be what amounts to a national funeral procession back to Canaan. It says it doesn't just include Joseph, not just his brothers, but all the servants of Pharaoh, all the elders of his household, even all of the elders of the nation of Egypt. So like everyone who is anyone is in this great company going back because this great man has died. And the mourning, if you kind of do some number work of how long it took them to travel and how long they mourned on the front end, you got about three to four months of mourning over this death. A third of a year over this loss. I think as Christians, we stink at mourning. And what I mean by that is that it feels like, and I talked about this last week, it feels like we don't have permission to be sorrowful when we experience a change that is difficult. And it's not always a death. But it's this idea of loss and Somehow we've been confused to believe that our theology um, restricts us from mourning. And what I'll say here is that when you have change in your life, when something happens that, that maybe even is just an unmet expectation, I don't know if the best thing is to go, well, you shouldn't have that expectation. It's not real helpful. I think it's actually okay that the Word of God gives us permission to mourn over what we hoped for. Change of this kind where it's really that depth affects a lot is not the time to pretend that you're strong. It's not the time to go, you know what, I just, I just, uh, you know, God's got this. If you really just haven't taken a chance to mourn, I would argue that if you don't take the appropriate time to mourn those kinds of things, there might be something wrong with that. Joseph, catch this, it wasn't like they went, oh, Jacob's dead. What? Did you see that coming? Okay, Jacob like 
has been dying for like three chapters, right? He's been dying for a long, he's been talking about, I'm probably going to die. 17 years later, he dies. So he's in his bed. So this is the kind of change that is not surprising. This is the kind of change that they know is going to happen. He's on his deathbed. He's on his deathbed for many years. And then he dies, and it still hurts. Think about that change that you know is coming. And it's still going to hurt. That's okay. And we need to mourn that. They mourn for some time. And I think what makes it really hard, like almost extra painful, is that you see that this change comes that Jacob dies at a time with great fruitfulness. Great fruitfulness in the land. Great fruitfulness in his own family. Joseph has been in this um, nation for probably about 50 years, give or take, at this point. Joseph. All right, so Joseph went there, then his brothers came. They've been there now for 17 years. So about 50-ish years that they probably have been there. And his influence and the influence of God's people is very tangible. And as they have sought to serve the city and, and seek its welfare, they've actually experienced welfare and fruitfulness, and they have multiplied greatly. And so... At the time of this shift, at the time of this change, they are very secure. They are very fruitful. They are very loved. They are very respected. This major change comes at what we might consider, oh, this is the worst time. Because it's so prosperous. You know, when things are prosperous, when things are going well, that's when we really don't expect change the most, and that's why we struggle with it so much. Marriage is going great. Family's going great. Job's going great. Church is going great. What? Change? Why are we changing? What's change? Why? Why would we ever do things were so great? Well, so what? Prosperity makes change very difficult. And it possibly has made it more difficult for them here. God has undeniably built something really awesome in Egypt through His people. And Perhaps one of the other reasons it's so difficult is because this loss marks not just a loss of a person. It actually marks a major change in just the whole family of God. So think about this. Jacob dies. He's 147 years old. And the way he cut that, that's old. He's an old dude. Never met anyone over 100. Um, 147. And so let's just say that for... Um, a portion of those years, he was a young man. He didn't have his family. So we'll say 100 years. So 100 years, he has been leading this family. 100 years of his leadership. 100 years of doing things the way he wanted. 100 years of, of rhythms and traditions gone. Things are now different. And his death, his removal, this this patriarch who has been leading everything and calling the shots for a hundred years, his death now is going to trigger new roles. That's what his blessing said. His blessing said, well, Judah, you're the fourthborn. Everyone's going to worship you. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. So like, he's gone now and everything is changing. New roles. New responsibilities. New relationships. New ways of doing things. And that can shake you. That shakes them. You will see it shakes his brothers. But I think the interesting thing is, I've always liked the image of pruning, right? 
The idea when things are fruitful, I'm not a garden expert. I usually kill most of the stuff that I prune or cut down. Sequoia knows what she's doing. I do not. Okay, I kill stuff. She makes it grow and makes it beautiful. So the reality is pruning, and if I'm totally wrong, there are people who correct me, pruning doesn't come at the time only when things are dead and dying. Pruning often comes at the time when it's, it's full and it's beautiful and needs to be trimmed so that it can, can thrive. But here's the reality of pruning. Now we talk about pruning. The Lord's really pruning. Okay. You know what that means, right? Because we're like surprised. The Lord's really pruning. Woohoo! zippity doo dah Like, really? Pruning's ugly. It makes things uglier typically when you prune it immediately. It's painful. It's undesirable. But it's necessary. It's necessary for growth. It's necessary for, for health. So we don't like pruning. And it's not always cutting out the worst things. It's often cutting out the best things. But it's for growth. It's for health. In truth, with Jacob gone, things will never be the same again. They will be different. But it's hard to believe when that's painful. Different is typically painful at first. But I would say, as Jerry Bridges said, whom I love his writing and his work, he said, God never wastes pain. Never wastes pain. He always causes it to work together for our ultimate good, the good of conforming us more to the likeness of His Son. He never wastes pain. Well, what's the first thing they do? They mourn. And then what's the second thing they do? Well, I believe that they start living and they actually remember some very important things. Right? He, he knows he has been told by his dad, you committed, take my body and take it back to the land of Canaan. So he goes to Pharaoh and he says, hey, my dad made this private request and he actually publicly said it to all my brothers and we're supposed to take his body back to Canaan. Would you let me do it? And that's not simply the request, like the final wishes of a dying man. It's much more than that that's going on, though it certainly is that. What I think it represents is something much greater. Even though there are lots of things that will change in our lives. Kids will grow up. Marriages will, will reach or go into different seasons. Churches will change and be reshaped. And different things will happen. Our jobs will change. All kinds of things will change. There are some things in our lives that should never change, regardless what happens relationally, regardless what happens vocationally, regardless what happens spiritually in our church. There's some core things that should never change, some foundational things that never change. And I think the cave that they're going back to represents those foundational things. They've talked about this cave in detail. They go through and explain who they bought it from, where it's at, like three or four times in the last three or four chapters. And this is the one piece of property that actually God's people at this point own in the land of Canaan. The land that they will be given, right? They own this one piece that Abraham bought. And in this place is where Abraham and his wife Sarah are buried. It's where Isaac and his wife Rebekah are buried. It's now where Jacob and his wife Leah will be buried. And this is the final, if you will, on earth resting place of the people of God. The burial cave of the people, the ones whom God spoke promises to personally. Major location. Major people. And 
and going back to this cave into the promised land to where the people whose promises were made to, they're going to remember some things. They're going to spend some time there. They're returning to something that's incredibly important, especially at times of loss and change. See, when we experience loss or change, when it finds us, when expectations or the ways of doing things die, we often spend a tremendous amount of our brain power looking forward to what will be and not enough looking backward at what has been. We start going like getting scared or, or just imagining what things are going to be like now when we should actually stop and go backwards. Change feels like chaos. Change feels like everything's been tossed up in the air and you're like, okay, everything and anything goes now. And the thing about the cave is it takes us back to remind ourselves that no matter what changes, no matter what we might lose, there's one thing that can be never taken away and that's our identity that's rooted in the promises of God. And that's what they're remembering. See, in your family, lots of things will change. In your job, many things will change. In our church, many things will change. But there are some things that should never change, and that is who God is, Regardless of what happened, God is good, God is great, God is generous, God is gracious, and He has made very specific and powerful and eternal promises to His people. Those are the things we hold on to. Everything else, let it go. We go and we focus on the things that cannot be taken away. I think it's probably best said this the best thing to do when things around us change, which they invariably will is to go back and remember the best things above us that never change. And if we could get a reminder of that, if we could just focus on the fact as, as chaos ensues, like I have talked to people and certainly people have suffered worse than I have in, in this life. But I've talked to those who I would characterize as suffering greatly and I asked them like, how did you endure? What was your secret? And to be surprised of the simplicity of their answers. They go back to very basic things. Things like Psalm 46, it says, be still and know I'm God. See, we always go forward and going, well, I knew this was going to end up this way. I was like, no, it's just, I'm just going to be still and know that God is in control. I'm going to know God is a loving Father. He always gives me His best. I know that God is a sovereign God and sovereign Father who has the power to give me His best that He is able and He is willing. There's nothing more powerful. Like basic stuff. And that's what they're doing. They're spending a significant amount of time there. Even the people watching like, dude, you guys are mourning a long time because I think they're actually pressing into something much more deep. But something else occurs when change occurs. As you go halfway through the passage, in verse, beginning in verse 15, his brothers have a very different experience than Joseph. His brothers have great fear. And if you can be certain of anything when change comes around, it's fear. Fear comes out, and the fears and the assumptions of, of those basically that are affected by the change become exposed during these times. After Jacob dies, the brothers begin to get really scared about what Joseph's going to do when dad's dead. So dad's gone, 
and they are fearful because they assume that for the last 17 years, Joseph's been faking it. That's really what they assume. Like, you know, guys, we, you know, and it's kind of like reasonable because you got to understand, they hated him. They, they beat him up, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery. I mean, they did bad things to him. You're like, dude, there's no, who would forgive this? Right? He's been quiet this whole time, and the only reason he hasn't done anything because he loves dad so much, but now dad's gone, and he is going to get his. They're assuming. They're assuming greatly. And the thing about it, when bad things happen to us, I wish it was the case, but we never assume the best. Very rarely do we assume the best. Like, it's we have to go like, hey, you know what? You're assuming too good. Don't assume, like, don't believe all things, hope all things. Like, don't do that. Like, it's going to be bad. You should assume, like, no, we naturally assume the worst. This is going to be horrible. This is how bad it's going to be. We always, like, I always, I think I preached a couple weeks ago, like, we always count the costs. Like, we're really good at counting the costs, not the blessings. Oh, my goodness, this is going to be horrible. That's what they start doing. And think about it. They've spent not just 17 years. Now they've spent three to four months mourning with their brother. So they've been with him. They've been in intimate experiences with him. And they get home. And what do they do? They send a message to him. It's probably a messenger. Today it would be like an email. They send a text. Now they've spent three to four months with him intimately. And they're like, so, we uh, talked to dad before he died and he said, don't hate us. Send. And see what happens. Right? And we kind of like go, like, that's silly, but do you know how many people do that today? When their fears get out, it's very rare for people to sit down anymore. Let me tell you about my fears. It's like, uh, don't hate me. Send. Don't hate you. What are you talking about? They send a message and it says so much about how they feel. And it's not just the fact they send the message, it's the message they send, right? Because they lie. They make it up. Yeah, we had this conversation with dad. Like, um, Joseph's been with dad longer than they have for a long time. It's like, yeah, dad told us right before he died that uh, you were supposed to forgive us everything we did and uh, not hurt us. So will you forgive us? The thing about change, it gives great opportunity for assumption. And that assumption usually can lead to great sin. And the assumptions, assumption is so powerful. The assumptions of his brothers, I'm assuming what Joseph thinking, I'm assuming what Joseph's feeling, I'm assuming what he's going to do. The only times I've sat down with people and they're basically angry with me because of something I haven't done. But they assume that I feel I think I'm going to do something like, okay, so wait, you're holding me accountable for a decision that's never been made. Just so I understand. Well, because you feel this. Thank you for telling me how I feel. I wasn't sure. Right? Like, it's these assumptions, assumptions, assumptions. Like, it really is rooted in their fear. I fear something, so I'm going to assume this because I don't want to, you know, experience this. I'm going to do everything, even sin, to avoid it. 
And the change, as I said, isn't causing them to be fearful. They've been fearful this whole time. They've been fearful for 17 years. And this is the thing that's bringing it about. Fear of everything but God is governing them. They don't trust Joseph. They don't trust God. And what does that do to Joseph? Like, think about, you got to think of all the things Joseph could do. Joseph would be like, what? How dare you? Question me? Accuse me? I can't believe it. After all I've done. He doesn't do that. Why does he just weeps? He just weeps. He's a, he's a crier. Don't we know that. But I think he's legitimately weeping because he, he does feel hurt because he realizes they don't trust me. After, I mean, he could, I don't know if he thinks this, but I would imagine he's like, after all I did? After all I've, I've, I've done? It's, it's as if when people start to assume, it's like all the history you had together goes out the window. Like, I thought, I, I thought we were brothers. I thought I, I loved you. Remember all those times, like over the last 17 years, like we, we made good and we were laughing, like, what happened? Fear caused that just to be, you're blind to it. They create a new narrative in their head of how things even were. It's called revisionist history. And notice how they come. They, they eventually come. They send the messenger, like, send the email. Okay, did you get my email? Right? And what do they do? They come before him and they bow before him and they say, we're your servants. You know what? When that happened before, the first time they met when he was a stranger. It's totally reverted back to like our relationship is non-existent. I don't know who you are. I'm assuming the worst. I'm scared of you. 17 years thrown out the window. And that's what fear does. That's what fear is so dangerous. Assumption is so dangerous. And when change comes, we have to be really careful because that can happen. And it doesn't have to be a major change. It can be a little one. But I believe Joseph shows us a powerful way to deal with it. The best way to deal with it. The fears of his brothers are certainly, I think, irrational, but they're real. You can't just go, you should be fearful. They're real. They're strong. You can't just say, don't fear. They are scared. And if not careful, Joseph could react to them in the same way and assume the wrong things and sin himself. Essentially, here's what you could do. He could make it about himself. What? You don't trust me? I can't believe it. I'm Joseph. How could you not trust me? I've done this and this all these times. I've done this. You know what he does? He says, trust God. He basically steps out of it. And that's the hardest thing to do. When people are scared and they assume and they start to accuse you, the hardest thing to do is to get defensive. Like, not get defensive, she's saying like, no, I'm going to prove you wrong. That's not the case. Instead, to step back and go, what's going on here? And how can I direct their eyes away? And so he says three things. First thing he says, I'm not God. I'm not God. He reminds his brothers that there is a God one God, and He is the one who judges, and He has no right nor desire to take vengeance on Him because that's not His job. Essentially, Joseph 
acknowledges, look, I am under authority and I am powerless, though positionally on earth, I have all the power in the world and all the authority. So you realize that, like, oh, Joseph's not going to play God. He could if he wanted to. He has the power to resolve it any way he wants. But he recognizes he is under authority. And those who put themselves on the throne of God don't realize that. In those times of change, people put themselves on the throne of God and know what they say? I'm going to take it upon myself to make this right according to how I think or feel. And these times of great change are often times of incredible vulnerability where things get super messy and you have people start to rise up and they try to force their own personal agenda in the name of God which is even more dangerous. Oh, this is what we should be doing. I know you're going to do this, and that's going to be unbiblical. Like, oh, thank you for letting me know. I'm not God, he says. This isn't about me. But then, the second thing he says is, what you meant for evil. So we'll just stop there in the middle of the sentence I realize that. What you meant for evil. Like, he does say to them for the first time, what you did was bad. What you did was wrong, right? I'm not going to judge your hearts, guys, but I will judge your behavior, and it is wrong. And he calls it like it is. He acknowledges that, look, bad things happened to me by your hands. It's possible this is the first time he's ever brought it up in 17 years. And he didn't even bring it up in many ways. The first time he talked about it, the only time he really referenced what they did was the first time he revealed himself, and he had said, Hey guys, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves over what you did. He doesn't go in to say it's evil, it's bad. He says, hey, look what God's done. Don't be angry with yourselves, though maybe you should be. But don't be angry. He actually acknowledges there's past mistakes. And that's actually what change allows you to do. Like when things shift, you kind of can stop and go, okay, yeah, that was bad. We can own that. We can identify that. We can say that that's bad. But instead of going, that's right, guys. I've been waiting for 17 years just to tell you how bad it is. You really did wrong. You should feel ashamed. You should feel so horrible. Instead of indenturing them to himself, that's right. Dad's gone, and I'm ruling, so you better be good. He says, trust God. He points them away from himself. And the third thing he says is the most powerful, right? God meant it for good. Trust God. I trust God, guys. So should you. These are some of the most powerful verses in Scripture, I think. could write many sermons on them. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that word meant, you really break that down. He's telling his brothers what you did was wrong. All the the forethought and the design and the intentionality and the effort and the energy that you put in to hurt me. Like, you did it by your hands, tangibly, thought about it, planned it. It wasn't react. It was like, we're going to hurt him and this is how. In the same way that they did that, Joseph says, God used those same evil things 
with just as much forethought, with just as much planning, with just as much intentionality to bring about good. So, Joseph doesn't say, you know what? It could have been worse, guys. It's okay. It could have been worse. You know what he actually says? Yeah, it's really bad, but it couldn't have been better. That's someone who trusts God in a way that is difficult for me to comprehend. It couldn't have been better. He says God wasn't just merely behind things. He's in front of things. And that none of the good that has happened would have happened had it not been for the pain that did. And granted, they're at the end of the story. Some of us are in the middle of the story. and They're like, no way. There's just no way this could turn out for good. Really? I know the God whom I believe. And it's Joseph's God. And overall, we see Joseph deal with this change and treat his brothers in a way that's different than the way they treated him. Like they came to him with assumption and lies and he offers affection and truth. He speaks truth about who he is, about who they are, about how he views God and that should be our goal. Speaking the truth in love to one another. Speaking the truth in love. Here's something you should put on a postcard. Put on your dashboard. We don't fear what we cannot control because we know that the God we fear is in control. There's going to be so many things we can't control. I would love to believe that I can control my children. I just cannot. They have taught me that, though I have tried. I certainly can't control my bride. I can't control the church. I, I don't think there's much I can control at all. Maybe, you know, what clothes I put on in the morning, but even that's questionable, right? But that's the things we fear. But let's not fear what we cannot control because there is one who is in control of it all. And that doesn't abdicate our responsibility. Like you read that and you're like, that's right. It doesn't matter what I do. That's not what I said. Because the sovereignty of God doesn't abdicate our responsibility to act. What it does actually is give us the confidence to act with fear, I'm sorry, without fear of doing something wrong. Or without fear that something wrong is going to be done to us outside of God's purview. Well, let's close this out. I think it ends in the most amazing way. Um, it started with the death of Jacob and then it ends with the death of Joseph, which is kind of strange. begins with the funeral of Jacob and then it ends with, with Joseph on his deathbed. So it kind of fast forwards over 60 years and doesn't really tell you what happened. But he's on his deathbed. He gathers his brothers around. He says, look, I'm about to die. So this is Joseph. And he shares his conviction that, you know what, one day God's going to visit you. He's going to take us out of this land and you better take my bones with you. And then he dies. Right? Fast forward into the book of Exodus. If you read the first chapters of Exodus, you see, and it says, Joseph died. Like it's a continuation, right? Joseph died. It says, and his brothers all died. And many of their kids died. And eventually people forgot about Joseph. And the people get enslaved. And then eventually an 80-year-old 
fugitive-turned-shepherd named Moses is called by God to come and lead his people out. And through a series of events, plagues and whatnot, he leads the people out of Egypt in the great Exodus, which the books of Exodus records. But before he leaves, before the exit, Exodus 13.19 says this, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry my bones with you from here. And here's the million dollar question, right? Moses takes the bones and the question is, how did he know he was supposed to take the bones? He hadn't written Genesis yet. It was 400 years between those periods. How did he know? That's because for 400 years, even through their slavery, they talked about God's promises. They talked about what was going to happen and what God was going to do, though it was really horrible up to that point. They always talked about their great hope. They always talked about the great promises of God and they never stopped talking about them. See, undoubtedly, we're all going to experience great disruptive and painful change in our lives, in our families, and in our church. And when it does come, I do believe it's good and right for us to mourn for what has been lost. But then we need to remember what God's promises were and what God's promises are. Let us not fear or assume or try to force our way. Rather, let us trust that our experience is not the result of God's indifference or His absence. On the contrary, as we see in Joseph, it's the very proof of His love and His presence. Let us do more than trust Him, but let us hope in Him and tell others about that hope. And I will close with, with this passage out of 1 Peter I know, pretty fancy, huh? This is a book that's written to a persecuted people who are suffering, waiting for Jesus to return. And remind them what they told themselves, what Peter said to tell yourself. It sounds very much what the Israelites probably remind themselves year after year. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope, not a dead one, not just a past one, a living and active one, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. He continues, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is not all there is. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Our hope is not in an unfailing people because they fail. Our hope is not in unchanging circumstances because they change. 
We can't control them. We must be reminded that our hope is in the resurrection and the return of Jesus Christ. That our hope in the midst of pain is in the resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. That our hope in the midst of our own sinful failure is the resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. That our hope in the midst of our fears and our assumptions is the resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. Our hope in the midst of less than and loss. Our hope in the midst of poverty is the resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. And our hope in the midst of fruitful prosperity is still the resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. Say it simply. Our hope in the midst of every unexpected change and even the expected ones is not something, I'm sorry, is something that never changes or is lost. And that's the unfailing love of God in Christ for His people. And that is why we come here every Sunday. We come to the table. And this is for those who confess they believe not for those who confess they fully understand and even like what they're experiencing, but that they believe that what has come into the life is evil, God means it for good. And for those who have confessed with the mouth of Jesus is Lord and believe in the heart that God raised from the dead, this table's for you. And this is the table where you come up, and I would argue, don't come up if you can't say, I know God means it for good. I know God means... You taking the bread which is Jesus' body broken for you, dipping it into the wine, which is Jesus' blood shed for you, is to look at the cross and say, I know it was meant for good, though it's horrible. And so as you come to the table, you think of whatever that thing is that's causing you fear, or that's just disrupted, or you just don't like, or was unexpected, and you say, I know God means it for good. And even though I don't understand it, don't see it, and may never fully comprehend it, I know who the God is I believe. And I know He means it for good. Let's pray.